Hello, I'm Richard Fieldhouse from the NASGP and welcome to the podcast, The Art of GP Locoming. And in this edition, I'm going to be reviewing the latest edition of The Sessional GP magazine, the April 2019 edition, which is our 106th. And so starting off with the front cover, again, this is a painting by Claire de Mortimer Griffin, uh, one of the GP locums, one of our uh, first members to use locum deck. And she regularly sends me paintings, photographs of her paintings. Uh, and actually, this one on the front cover um, is still, it's still wet, apparently. Uh, obviously not the digital version, but the one she's taken a photograph of. So it must be in oils and I guess it'll probably be wet for another week or so. But it's really nice to see. You can, uh, it's got it's got lovely depth, and actually, it, it almost feels alive. Um, some lovely contemporary colours, and nice nice colours for the spring. So our first article is from Sarah Chambers, and this one is called "The Locum's Role in the Culture of Improvement." So. This is about an article that Sarah read in the New England Journal of Medicine Catalyst um, about a report that they did from the Institute of Health Improvement Research looking at the tactics that can be used in healthcare that make uh, small tactics that can go on to make long sustainable changes and makes the point that so often in, in healthcare, as in other things in life, we're presented with a problem and so from up high we're presented with a solution a big solution which is then implemented into great fanfare and guess what they just never really things never really kind of change what this research looks at is actually what what does then make a difference and it and it looks at these tactics and it picks uh, four tactics out um and what what sarah weaves into this article is about how using these tactics these are tactics that that we as gp locums working in perhaps dozens of different practices a year can still be an absolute integral and fundamental part of so um sarah mentions standardization uh and that's something we do very much with the NASGP. We like to think of ourselves as innovators and creating tools for our, our members to use. One of those is LocumDAC, which is a locum deck, which is sort of a standardised booking platform, but also, of course, our, our standardised practice information portal, um, which is a, a way for, for, for guidelines and policies and procedures to be shared across practices that are practice-specific. So standardisation, using standardisation improves outcomes in healthcare uh, and these are sustainable another thing that it talks about is visual guides um, another one of these tactics is escalation so the ability to come across something and if there's if we perceive this as being abnormal or wrong or something that perhaps needs to be escalated how do we as how do we do this? Um, and of course, we as locums can be an absolute integral part of that. Uh, Sarah's last article looked at our, our ability to use our fresh pair of eyes to look at things afresh. Um, and again, completely baked into SPIP, our, our online platform um, that comes with membership. Uh, we've, we've got a system of reporting, of error reporting, of system reporting. It's called GAINS if you're in a practice. 
um, log into any SGP website, go to the, the practices, uh, standardized practice information portal that you have access to. And in there, there's a button um, where you can easily report an issue regarding um, prescribing or referrals or, or something like that. So escalation is the third tactic. And the fourth one is, is integration, about being integrated into um, um, sort of part of the healthcare economy and, and, and a big part of that again with with us as, as, as locum GPs and something we've done at the NASGP is, is through things like chambers um, uh, in terms of a community of GPs coming together uh, and being an integrated part of the healthcare community. So there is there are lots of things that we, we can be involved with as locums as any GP um, and those are the the small things that we can do that actually do make a proven difference so really great article by Sarah and I, I'd really recommend you you read that then next article is from uh, Liz Tensley so Liz asked us what um, we thought would be a good idea to put in the magazine and we came up with this idea um, of Probably something, probably something we've seen on adverts on TV where someone is cycling along or driving along and little thought bubbles come into their head as they do stuff. So we said to Liz, well, why don't you think of a locum doing this, getting up in the morning and going about their work throughout a day in the life of a locum? You know, they, they get in their car, they fill it up with petrol, they buy a sandwich, they go sit, do a visit. Where are the tax claim points involved in this? What Liz has done is she's actually taken five days because there is just so much. And this this is a long article, but we go from day one, 6 a.m., our, our character, Jess, a brand new mobile phone alarm wakes her up and then Liz says, well, you can claim tax relief on the estimated business proportion of the cost of the mobile phone and carries on with about 30, 40, 50 different items um, from dry cleaning to grabbing a sandwich, working as a salary GP, working as a locum GP, working regular sessions as a locum, working irregular sessions as a locum. It's a really, a really good little guide there. Well worth a read. So thanks very much, Liz, for doing that. The next article is from Nigel Farrer from Legal and Medical. Like Liz, who is a, a, um, a specialist medical accountant, really important that if you've got an accountant, get a specialist medical accountant. For all the nuances that are involved in working as any type of GP, whether you're just working as just salaried or working as just a locum or, 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 or all of them together. It can be very, very complex and you need a specialist medical accountant to deal with that. But like a specialist medical accountant, these guys, Nigel Farrer is a specialist medical financial advisor. So you've got um, their sort of products to do with you working as, a, you know, obviously NHS pension, um, health insurance policies. But this article is tips for GP locums going about getting a mortgage. And again, there are, there are eight, eight top tips, I think, in this. And, and Nigel breaks those down, whether you're a newly qualified GP or a more long-in-the-tooth GP locum, um, and, and goes through sort of, I guess, mortgage hygiene to really work out what you need to get your ducks in order um, before you even apply for a mortgage. Um, so things I've picked out would be that, for example, before you apply, apply for a mortgage, get a credit check. Make sure you've actually got proper uh, credit levels. Make sure you're on the electoral register because that will help with your credit rating. Make sure you're paying your bills on time. Um, but also not to go to a mortgage provider 
who is likely to turn you down because they don't have expertise in dealing with GP locums and mortgages. Because if you get turned down by a mortgage provider, then that's going to affect your credit rating. So again, going to a specialist medical financial advisor, you're going to get someone with the experience of knowing which mortgage advisors are going to reject you and which are more likely to um, to uh, to give you a mortgage. So again, good article, lots of advice on there. And, re and with this magazine, it, it, for the for the next two months, this magazine will be freely freely available. Um, so do share this 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 podcast link or the the actual magazine with with your friends and colleagues, um, uh, because there's some, some some really really important information in there. Going through to our next article, passing past um, one of another one of Claire's lovely paintings, is from the Medical Protection Society. Now, this article is about burnout and how to avoid it. Um, it looks at the causes of workload, but coming why why is why is this article coming from a medical defense organization obviously because as gps if if we are burning out and, and one of the problems with burnout is we often don't know it's happening to us is you are just more likely we are just more likely to make a mistake to make those errors um to not be as thorough maybe or to just be too exhausted to pick up on on, on something someone said um so there's this huge relevance there for, for the mps and for us to be on top of this and look at the features and recognize in ourselves if that's happening to us and where these 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 areas are so many i think the six causes recognized causes that rachel goes through the first obviously is workload working too much i, I know locums um over the years who, for example, particularly when starting out as locuming, have been, been so enthusiastic and so nervous about uh, getting enough work that they've just booked all, all, all the work they possibly can and suddenly find themselves with, with calendars that are just full 10 sessions a week for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. And then they just crash. Um, so workload obviously is an issue. Control. Uh, whether you have uh, whether you're being micromanaged at work or whether you don't have enough control uh, whether you um, uh, in, in a situation and you just don't feel you can you can put limits on it and, and, and set boundaries with whether that's your employer even with patients um, and even with yourself in terms of, of, of getting too much work whether you find your work is rewarding and that, that goes with getting feedback from people and, and enjoying where you work, I guess, and interacting with, with, with other colleagues. And which is the fourth point is in, in burnout is, is having a community, is getting to meet other GPs, people like you who you can talk to offload with. Again, a, a great uh, thing that something, something mentioned that uh, Rachel mentions in this article is being part of a a locum chambers or a sessional GP group of some sort, somewhere where you know you've got some friends who are colleagues, colleagues who are friends, where you can sit down, break bread, chat with, unload, have a what's called a psychologically safe environment with a with a positive affect, so you can so it's enjoyable, um, and where you have sort of a shared meaning. Those things can all really help reduce burnout um, and, or help you avoid it. And then, of course, fairness and make thinking that well, the work you're doing is fair compared to other people in the similar environment. If you're if you're if you're being overworked, obviously that sense of unfairness can can again lead to lead to burnout. So good article there. A really interesting article from from Rachel of MPS.
Uh, and firing on for that, not unrelated, this is this next article is from Kate Little. It's uh, she calls it staying safe. And although it's this article is, is would be it's just about mental safety, health, mental health safety. Um, and, and, and Kate brings this right up to the fence, right up to to looking at suicidal ideation. And one way of reading this article is, yes, we, this is really good advice and lots of resources and links here, as always, from Kate to help us help our patients. But actually, Kate's taken a different approach in this article and aims this at us as GPs and gets us thinking about what would we do if we were in this situation when we were thinking of harming ourselves or, or contemplating suicide and things like that. And of course, we're, we're very much surrounded all the time by, by patients um, with mental health problems. But to actually have it, I think, in such a black and white way that, that Kate's done here is really useful. It's very powerful and is a really good one to think about uh, and, and having our and our toolkit in our armory to, for in, in preparedness should should we be in that sort of position. Um, and so I think that's worth a read just to have it there as the back of your mind that, that, we, that there is this article you can you can go to and other resources um, should that be should that be running through your mind and of course for, for patients relatives colleagues as well and something to point people towards. Then uh, the penultimate article is, as always, from Judith. Hi, Judith. I know Judith always listens to this podcast. And Judith will then um, email me within, in a few days' time to hook up a, an appointment, as it were, to do a Skype interview about this article. So this this article is called Singing in the Brain. This is about music and particularly about um, um, dementia. And Judith was recently found herself at London's Wigmore Hall for a for a day spent having a workshop in the morning on how to sing and perform and then then i think actually putting on a performance with others singing uh and it got judith thinking about uh about singing and a lo lovely thing that that judith writes here is it's about she says music finds a back door into even the most ramshackle brain and it got judith thinking about how the experience of singing relates to having dementia uh and how powerful singing can be and how it's how this back door it helps with singing helps with uh, uh enjoyment and breathing and memories uh muscle memory all these things that come together for for patients with dementia who sing and and, and looks into a whole lot of uh movements and ways of uh a sort of therapy that, that people can get into with nursing homes and getting people with dementia to, to sing and talks about something called playlists for life where even GPs are prescribing this to patients to recommend relatives go away and make a playlist of, of, of all those musical things in, in their in their relatives lives whether it's commercials TV shows from when they were young um, musical theatre rock whatever um, and have to, 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 so that so that it can help people, I guess, um, anchor them back in, in, in those times, happy memories and, and whatever, and the difference that makes to people. But we're going to go, I know we're going to go into this article in a lot more depth with Judith uh, when we do the next podcast. So listen out for that. 
And then lastly, our last article is from Louise Hudman. Louise has uh, taken a, a, a big in-depth review of the latest na- uh, sign guidelines this time on fecal fetal fecal fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and and fecal fetal um, alcohol in, in alcohol consumption during uh, pregnancy and the effects that has on the un- unborn infant and, and neonate and whatever and just. Really, the article goes into a lot of uh, detail, a lot of depth of, of the guideline, but really it's about making us aware that if we're seeing any uh, any children with uh, neuro, uh, neurological disorders, to bear this in mind, to take history, to actively ask uh, the parent, the mother, uh, about alcohol consumption and often and, and bearing in mind uh, as this article says that the that that can even be hidden or underestimated um uh, during uh, b- by by the mother so looking into that um because the whole we not because what we can actually do the intervention we can make is that if we do pick this up that that um that recommending educational support uh, can make a difference because the children with um, FASD, fetal alcohol spectrum disorders, can go on to more more likely to die young, to have men, uh, mental health problems, to have a forensic history, to pap- uh, to take drugs themselves, um, and all sorts of other things. But so, uh, an educational intervention, um, better education, and educational support can reduce uh, the risk of that um, and the morbidity associated with that. So very much worth knowing about. And also, if we actually picking up the um, the physical signs um, of fetal, fetal alcohol syndrome, must not make must not make the mistake of, of saying that wrong. Then and this and again again, Louise has put some really good links in this in this article. Um, to 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 actually with actual pictures on websites of, of actual the um the physical symptoms and physical signs uh, then to, to actually go ahead and make a referral uh, in those situations but to do it in a very sensitive way so uh, great article there's and when this goes live on the uh, on the website as a blog um, with that will also go our usual regular uh, electronic learning e-learning uh, form so you can actually read the article there and uh, make your reflections and you'll get a PDF certificate of that for your annual appraisal. So, Louise, thank you very much for that article. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Art of GP Locoming podcast. Uh, please subscribe on iTunes and Google uh, Google Podcasts and other platforms so that you get this downloaded to your device uh, as and when they come out. Um and of course, if you if you are if you're an NESGP member, thank you so much for your support. If you're not not yet a full paying member of NESGP, it's only eleven pounds a month. Um, there's great things on the website you'll have privileged access to. You've of course got the whole of the the practice suite of tools, the the locum deck, the instant book, the accounts package, and standardised practice information portal spips, um, sort of online locum packs of practices. So you get all of that with any SGP membership and much more. Thank you for listening.